Good morning. I'm all in. Are you all in? Yes, I'm all in. Great. You ever seen this series of books? Maybe you've bought one of these books to better educate you on a certain subject. The Four Dummies series of books began in 1991 with a title DOS for Dummies, DOS being computer lingo. And since that time, publishers have churned out 2,500 iterations of these types of books. Now, the idea behind these books was not to insult the intelligence of a potential consumer, but rather to tap into, playfully albeit, tap into the natural experience that all of us have, which is wanting to know something about a subject that we know absolutely nothing about, whether it be bookkeeping or real estate or, or networking, whatever subject that it may be that is over our heads. The idea was taking something complex and reducing it down, simplifying it so it's easier to understand. And that's really what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He's boiling it all down, helping us to better understand what it means to be a follower. How does someone who is outside of the kingdom become a kingdom citizen? How is that person supposed to function within the kingdom? But it's not just about comprehension. It's also about commitment. And in verse 12 of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this. He says it in the simplest of terms, so even the simplest of minds can understand. He says, in everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. What an elementary yet profound statement. It's often referred to as the golden rule. It is a summation of everything that Jesus has been talking about up to this point. We know, if you've been joining us over the last few weeks, we know that Jesus started with the Beatitudes, a description of a kingdom citizen. This is the character of a kingdom dweller. And then he moves on to how that those kingdom dwellers are to be an influence in the world, salt of the earth, lights of the world. And then he moves into letting your yes mean yes, your no mean no, all that kind of stuff. He talks about how he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Then he moves into interpersonal relationships. Notice what he says. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not murder, and whoever commits murder shall be answerable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be answerable to the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be answerable to the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Then he moves into teachings about adultery and uh, making false vows, all those different things. And then he gets really radical when he says this, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not show opposition against an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. So our Lord is emphasizing the radical nature of this kingdom and the radical attitude that we as kingdom citizens must have. Now, you know as well as I do, the world doesn't play by these rules. The world responds in opposition to these types of rules. Many in our world 
adhere to what we would call the iron rule. And the iron rule is do unto others before they do unto you. Iron rulers use power and might for selfish gain. The lock on your front door is a testament to the iron rule. The Taylor County Jail is a monument to the iron rule. There have been many iron rulers throughout history. Alexander the Great, Hitler, every greedy politician that has used their power for personal gain. Abusive husbands or fathers are iron rule devotees. Even in the Bible, we see iron rulers. It all started with Cain. He was the first adherent to the iron rule, and many have followed in his footsteps. You know, it's bad enough to see the iron rule implemented in society. What's even worse is when we see it infiltrate the church. We actually see that in 3 John. Notice what is written there. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with malicious words, and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brothers either, and he forbids those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Notice how John describes this iron ruler by the name of Diotrephes. Loves to be first among them. He unjustly accuses with wicked words. He does not receive the brethren, and he doesn't let others do it either. Diotrephes was a local church dictator. He bullied his way around the congregation, using his power and his might to satisfy his own self-interest. He was an uncontrollable virus that was killing the church. And unlike the golden rule, the iron rule ignores the interest of others solely in favor of self. The only person who benefits from the iron rule is the one who implements it. It is selfish and self-centered in every sense of the word. And what's worse is it doesn't care who it harms so long as it gets its way. Renowned Jewish rabbi Hillel had a version of the golden rule. He said this, What is hateful to yourself, do to no other. He added, this is the whole Torah, everything else is just commentary. Hinduism has a form of the golden rule. It says, this is the sum of duty. Do not do to others what would cause pain if done to you. Confucius had a form of the golden rule. What you do not wish yourself, do not unto others. And even the humanist has a version of the golden rule. Don't do things you wouldn't want to have done to you. Now, these are certainly a step above the iron rule, aren't they? However, they still fall short of the message that Jesus is conveying, because why? Because they're still selfish in nature. The statement, what you do not wish to be done to you, do not do to others, has been dubbed the silver rule. It's been said that the silver rule is the golden rule, just in negative form. The silver rule would forbid you to steal your neighbor's wallet, because that's just a bad thing to do. You wouldn't want somebody stealing your wallet, so you don't steal your neighbor's wallet. However, if you find somebody's wallet, it's got $100 in it, that's yours. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. The silver rule 
while a little more admirable than the iron rule, still falls well short of the golden rule because it's still protecting your own self-interest. You're still the object of attention. Maybe a bit more humanitarian than the iron rule, but it's still about self. And that's exactly what Jesus is attacking. He's attacking narcissism. He's putting selfishness in his crosshairs because that's our default setting, right? We are just narcissistic by nature. And discipleship starts with a funeral. Before you can become a child of God and become a follower of Jesus, before you can enlist in the Lord's army, before anything else can change in your life, you've got to die. There has to be a death. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will will find it. Discipleship begins with death. You cannot be a follower until there has been a funeral. This is where the golden rule comes in. It attacks selfishness. It is a manifestation of what Jesus stated when the scribe asked him, what's the foremost commandment of all? Remember what he said? The foremost is, hear Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So here's the formula given out by Jesus, God, neighbor, and me. This is the pecking order in the kingdom. We start with God. If we ever want to get anything right in our lives, we have to start with God. Start with Him. Get that right first. Get that relationship right first. My relationship with God should affect all other relationships in my life. Like we've been saying over and over again, the vertical affects the horizontal. Don't expect the vertical to be straight if the horizontal is crooked. Your vertical relationship with God affects your horizontal relationship with other people. You start with God. So if I want a prolific marriage, if I want to have the best marriage possible, I don't start with my spouse. I don't start with me. I start with God. If I want to be the best father that I can possibly be, I don't start with my children. I don't start with me. I start with God. Any relationship in my life, if I want it to be great, I don't start with the relationship with those people, with that person. I start with God. When Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, he wasn't saying, get the first one right, and then once you've mastered it, you can move on to the next one. You see, the golden rule starts with God. I am third in this formula, God, neighbor, and me. However, loving God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength is coupled with loving my neighbor as myself. It's a package deal. Jesus wasn't saying, look, get that first one right, and once you've mastered it, move on to the next one. No, the two go hand in hand. They were never intended to be separate. How do I know this? Because I find this reiterated over and over again in Scripture. 1 John chapter 4, beginning verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. God and neighbor come in a package deal in the form of Jesus Christ. Remember when Jesus said, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. 
naked and you clothed me. I was sick and in prison and you visited me. And the sheep hearing this were confused. Surely they would have remembered helping Jesus. And Jesus tells them, truly, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Jesus was showing himself in our neighbor. He is God and he is our neighbor. It's a package deal. Loving God, loving our neighbor is a package deal. And notice what loving God and loving our neighbor is predicated upon. Love your neighbor as what? As yourself. Well, that's a little complicated, isn't it? The implication is there, and it's clear. You cannot properly love your neighbor if you don't properly love yourself. Do you believe that? That's a little hard for some of us to swallow because some of us don't, we don't love ourselves very much. And I realize it may seem like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth here. We just talked about Jesus attacking narcissism, and I'm telling you, you need to love yourself. But understand the type of self-love we're talking about. Because society will tell you you need to love yourself, too. Society will tell you you're the center of the universe, that you are the star of a show, and everything else is just, is just filler. That everyone around you is just they're actors in a play about you. Just be yourself. Be true to yourself. No, don't do that. Your true self stinks. Don't be yourself. Be something better than yourself. Be Jesus, right? But you've got to love yourself if you want to love God and love your neighbor properly. What do we mean by that? Well, it's not the narcissistic thing that Jesus is pointing out that he's trying to dispel of. When we talk about loving ourselves, we're talking about seeing ourselves the way that God sees us. You were made in the image of God. You were stamped in his image. You ever get to thinking you're not worth much, consider the cross. Jesus sent his son, his only begotten son, to die for you. You ever think you're not worth much? Consider God created you and stamped you in his own image, and he sent his son to die for you. You have immeasurable value and worth. So this is about seeing you the same way that God sees you and letting that affect the way that you see other people. Does that make sense? That's what this is about when we talk about self-love. It's God, neighbor, and me. You just got to keep the self-love in the proper context. You are third, but that doesn't mean that you're an addendum. That doesn't mean that you're an insignificant piece of the puzzle. You've just got to find your place. My love for God motivates my love for me. He loved me enough to create me and die for me. Therefore, I should see others the same way. Because God is first, I am third. It's not that I love me any, any less necessarily. It's that I love God the most. And when I love God more than anything else, then I'm going to love others best. I love others best when I love God the most. Many years ago, my son was playing All-Stars for Wiley and and the house that we had had a pool. And so we had the team over for a pool party. And they decided that they wanted to play a game in the pool. What was the game? I have no idea. I don't think anybody knew. Because I don't know if this is the way with girls, but with young boys, they, they conjure up so many rules you can't even enjoy the game. They sit out there and they, they make the rules up as they go along. If something doesn't go their way, no, no, that's not what it would do. You've got to do it this way. And they suck all the joy out of the game. We do that as Christians sometimes. I'm not a big fan of referring to the golden rule as a rule. Because it was meant to be relational, not regulatory. And so I don't like the word rule here. Jesus fought this constantly. 
putting the rules ahead of the relationship. In fact, the entire Sermon on the Mount is an effort by Jesus to write it on the people's hearts. The religious leaders had defaulted to rule, and God wanted relationship. Christians have followed suit over the years. We tend to default to rules because we want to know what's expected of us. Like I've said before, anytime you sit down to play a game you're unfamiliar with, what's the first question you ask? What are the rules? How do I win? And that's what we want to know in Christianity. How do I get to heaven? What are the rules? In our performance-based society, we have this merit-based mindset. What do I got to do to win here? And Jesus is saying, no, no, that's not what it's about. It's about relationship first and foremost. If you take your marriage seriously, you won't commit adultery. That's against the rules. But more importantly, you put your relationship with God first. You can be married for 50 years and never cheat on your spouse. Doesn't mean you had a good marriage. You can be a lousy husband or wife and still stay married for 50 years. You don't commit adultery because you love God first and foremost. And you don't want to disappoint him. So you live within the boundaries. You live within the guidelines, the parameters that he has set because you love him more than anything else. Your love for God motivates your love for your spouse. And that keeps you within the proper boundaries of a godly marriage. So you don't start with rules. You start with God. And when you start with God in the relationship, keeping the rules won't be a problem. Winning isn't an issue. It's kind of it's like this guy named John who walked in the bank one day and he asked the teller to speak to an agent that he was supposed to meet there. He had an appointment with and the teller said, I'm sorry, he's not going to be in today. You're going to have to come back tomorrow. It's okay. Uh, well, can you validate my parking? And she said, no, we can't validate your parking if you don't make a transaction. That's our policy. And he said, well, may I remind you, I came to make a transaction, but the agent didn't show up. And she goes, well, I'm sorry, that's our policy. And so John decided to make a transaction so he could validate his parking. He pulled all $1.5 million out of the bank that day. John was John Akers, the founder of IBM. And that transaction allowed him to have his parking val- uh, validated. The teller followed the rules. She followed policy, but in her attempts to follow policy, she forgot about the person. And that's very similar to what Jesus dealt with. The Pharisees had missed the spirit of the law. They had turned something that was meant to be relational into something rote and mechanical. If you go back to the law, the book of law in Leviticus, here's what you read. It says, you shall not do injustice in judgment. You shall not show partiality to the poor, nor give preference to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to jeopardize the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may certainly rebuke your neighbor, but you are not to incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor hold any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. We tend to think of the old law as just a set of rules. You get over in the New Testament and God's mellowed out a little bit and now you have grace. But you see the same things reiterated over and over in the old and new. I mean, right here, you see it. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. Right here in the book of law, in Leviticus, the book about blood and guts, you see it right here. Because everything in the old law is reiterated in the New Testament. Have you noticed that? And it's all about relationship. It's all about writing it on your hearts. The formula 
whether we're talking about old or new, Moses or, or Jesus or, or, or Torah or the gospel, it's all the same. The formula is God, neighbor, me. You follow the rules because God said so, and you love him so much that you want to please him. And so you respond to that love by loving your neighbor and treating them the way that you want to be treated. The law was never meant to produce rule followers. The law was meant to produce God followers, to produce Jesus followers, to produce disciples, people who wanted what God wanted. And what does God want? Well, Micah tells us, The prophet says, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? It's always been about the relationship that we have with God and others. It was never about mere compliance. It was always about community. What does it mean to be a child of God? What does it look like to be a disciple? Jesus sums it up. In everything, therefore, treat people the way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Notice that last line, for this is the law and the prophets. In other words, this is a summary of everything the law spoke of, everything that the law pointed to, everything that the prophets spoke of and pointed to. It is their whole object and purpose. He's probably looking at the Pharisees at this point, staring them in the face. Anyone else who is within earshot? He's saying, you're missing it. They were turning God into a referee or some code enforcement officer. We tend to think that way as well. I hope God doesn't catch me on a technicality and turn me into a french fry for all eternity. God wants a relationship with you. God wants to be with you. And the law was intended to illuminate a God who desires a relationship with holy people. That was the purpose of the law. That's what the prophets were pointing to. And that's what Jesus came to fulfill. Yesterday, we, we were in Dallas to pick up my, my daughter Zoe. And if you've ever driven through Dallas, you go down the interstate and there's a branch off the interstate at different points called an HOV lane. You know what an HOV lane is, right? It allows you to travel a little faster with less traffic. But there's a rule Not everybody gets to do it. What's the rule for traveling in the HOV lane? You have to have a passenger. Somebody in the last service told me, I didn't know that. I've always traveled in the HOV lane. I said, well, as long as you haven't been arrested, I guess that's fine. But the law states you have to have a passenger, right? We need to be HOV Christians. God never intended for us to travel down this interstate to heaven by ourselves. He always intended for us to take other people with us. He intends for us to pick people up along the way, to gather passengers, to take as many people with us as possible. And you do that by focusing on the relationship. The relationship with God first, then with your neighbor. Seeing people the way that God sees you. That's the pecking order. And let me tell you, it works. I'm sure you've seen it in your life as well. It works. When you follow the divine design, it works. Get the order right. Operate within the right context. Don't get the cart before the horse. Rules are important, but rules by themselves only modify behavior. It's the relationship that makes them worth anything. I love God, and I don't want to disappoint Him. Therefore, I do what He tells me. There was a gentleman who was involved in a very serious auto accident. It left him completely paralyzed and incapacitated. He was a prisoner in his own body. He could hear, could hear what's going on around him, but he couldn't, he couldn't move, except for his pinky. 
the only movement he had. He couldn't talk. He was trapped in his own body. And so when the EMTs arrived on the scene, they assumed that he was dead. And so rather than taking him to the ER, they loaded him up to take him to the morgue. And as they're wheeling him on the gurney down the hallway to the morgue, he's tapping his finger. He's tapping his pinky vigorously on the gurney, but they can't hear it because the gurney wheels are squeaking. He keeps tapping. He can hear what they're saying, and he's panicked. They put him on the tray, and they get ready to push him into the, into the refrigerator. And just then, one of the EMTs stops, and he says, wait, he's alive. And the other one says, how do you know? He said, because I see a tear. You know what the golden rule is about? The golden rule is about recognizing the authentic existence of others by seeing the tear in their eye and making those tears your tears and seeking to wipe them away. We as Christians are to be truth tellers with tears. There are some people that love nothing more than to tell people when they're wrong and that they're going to hell. But remember where you came from. You of all people should understand the tears involved in this. You of all people should understand what it means to be saved by the grace of God. And you of all people are giving people a front row seat to that grace. So be a truth teller with tears. Can we help you this morning? Are you teary-eyed? Before you start putting all your stuff away and get ready to go, listen to me. Do you need prayer? Would you like to study the Bible with someone? You are all born with an expiration date. None of you are getting out of this life alive. I, I checked the mortality rates for Taylor County, and guess what? They're 100%. But you have no excuse to leave here this morning without being right with God. Let us help you get there. Come as we stand and as we sing.